So tonight, I've always tried to keep my uh, sheets that I give y'all one-sided, but tonight is a double-sider, so let's strap in and get ready. Um, but if I were to ask you, uh, God is blank, what, what would you say? What's, what's the first word that comes to your mind? God is, just go ahead, and, amazing, righteous, love. holy, love, awesome, right? We have all kinds of words uh, that we have to describe God, right? You could spend your whole life thinking of wonderful adjectives to describe God. But has it ever occurred to you that God is righteous, that God is love, that God is kind because he is Trinity? The very reason why God can be the type of God that we know from Scripture is only because he is a Trinitarian God. That's why our God of the Bible is, is not the same God of other religions. Uh, no other religion has a Trinitarian God. Some religions are, are polytheists. They, they believe in many, many gods. Uh, there are other religions that are monotheists. They believe in a singular God, but they don't believe in a Trinitarian God. This issue of the Trinity is something that sets Christianity apart from every single other religion in the world. So hopefully as we've gone through this series, we've been uh, combating the whole idea that studying doctrine is, is boring or that it's not meaningful for your daily Christian life. But sometimes when we think of the doctrine of the Trinity, it sounds so theoretical it sounds so abstract, it's so difficult sometimes to understand or to comprehend, or we hear confusing illustrations about it. It's like, what impact does this have on me? Why is this an important thing for me right now to know in the midst of my life in 2018? It might just feel like it's a lot of theological jargon that uh, people in seminaries think up because they have nothing better to do, right? Um, but the Trinity is something that is central to our entire faith as, as Christians. And if you think about it, it was important to, to Jesus as well. If you read uh, John chapters 13 through 17, this is Jesus. He's preparing to go to the cross. He's in the upper room with his disciples. And if you look at all of his teachings in John 13 through 17, you see that what he teaches is all centered around this concept of the Trinity. And Jesus never says, okay, I'm going to teach you guys about the Trinity now. But what he, everything that he does talk about relates to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which he refers to as the helper in those passages. And so everything that Jesus talks about with his disciples the night before he's about to be taken away and to be crucified is in regards to the Trinity. And so you have to think, if, if Jesus is going to spend his last teaching moments with his disciples before he goes to the cross on something that is focused on the Trinity, surely there must be something practical. Surely there must be something here for us today as well. Jesus did not usually spend his time just theorizing about things just to be a philosopher, right? He was always speaking into the lives of his followers. So for all of its complexity and sometimes confusingness, the the whole doctrine of the Trinity is essential to our faith, and it's something that you and I can not only study, but we can delight in. And that's why I've titled this lesson, which is also based off of a book. Uh, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's not something, something to be bored by. It's not something that should just confuse us. 
is something that should stir up joy as we learn about who God is. Uh, if you go to a Christian bookstore, usually the uh, books that fly off the shelves are the how-to books, right? Give me something to do. Show me how I can be a better blank. Show me how I can have God's blessings in this area of my life, right? Those are usually the books that are the bestsellers. Um, but Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. Christianity is first and foremost about knowing God. That's why so many Christians in the early church spent so much time thinking about, talking about, writing about the Trinity. Because in order for us to know God, in order for us to worship God, in order for us to live for God, we have to know who is this God that we worship. And he is fundamentally a Trinitarian God. He is a Trinity. So in order for you and me to succeed in our spiritual walk, we have to understand who this God is, right? How can I please a God that I do not know? How can I worship a God in truth if I don't know who he is? And so understanding God as Trinity is, is the framework which frames every other aspect of our Christian life. And so it is this distinction that makes us separate and unique among all of the religions and faiths of the world. Like, why is God love? It's because he is a trinity. Why can you and I be saved? It's because God is a trinity. How are we able to live the Christian life? That's through the trinity. This has impact on every single aspect of the teachings of Scripture. And so we'll jump right in today. Uh, point number one is just basic facts about the Trinity. So just kind of give a basic high-level overview of, of kind of proving from Scripture that the Bible does talk about the Trinity. Because if you look, if you do a, a search, a uh, word find for Trinity in Scripture, you won't find it. Right? There is no verse that says, okay, the Trinity is this. Right? There is no verse that even has the word Trinity in it. But all of Scripture affirms Trinity in many different places. So I have a few passages here. Um, first of all, passages that affirm God's oneness. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we start off, understand, okay, God is one. There is one God. But we also see that God is Father. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. So God is one, God is Father, and then you have Jesus Christ, the Son. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then also the, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we don't view the Holy Spirit as God himself. Sometimes we think of him more as a force, right? But he is God himself. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 through 4 is, is the passage where Ananias and Sapphira, they bring their offering to the apostle Peter, lying about it. And he says, you have, you've lied to, to the Holy Spirit. You have sinned against God, right? Peter equates Holy Spirit with God himself. That's just a quick, there's many other passages there that I've listed for your reference that you can look up at a later time that talks about how, how Scripture talks about how God is one, God is Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's also dozens of texts that speak of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the same breath, putting them all on, on the same plane, right? It's saying this, this is God. And in Acts chapter, or uh, 1 Peter uh, 1, verses 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his blood. 
So all, all that to say, over and over and over again in Scripture, it affirms the idea, the principle, the teaching of a Trinitarian God. The word Trinity is not in Scripture, but the idea and the teaching and the belief of it is. Uh, and so if you want to have a um, not necessarily short, but very clear definition of what the Trinity is, I've included it there for you on your sheet. It's there is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. That seven uh, phrases kind of sums up every major Christian confession of faith over the centuries. And it also separates us from other cults, or cults, we're not a cult, from cults that teach something about Christianity, or they, they affirm some aspect of the Trinity, but then they, then they deny perhaps uh, the deity of Christ, or, or they deny something about the Holy Spirit, or they only affirm God the Father. Right? These seven phrases here is the um, tradition that Scripture has taught us that the church over thousands of years has affirmed over and over and over again. So pretty simple. Um, it's very clear. There's only one God. Each member of the Trinity is God, and they are not each other, right? And so that uh, blank underneath there is that God is one essence, but three persons. God is one in essence, but he is three persons. So what is essence? Uh, you can just think of essence as uh, godness, right? They are one in godness. They are all God, but they are three persons, um, so all three persons of the Trinity share, share the same godness. They uh, share the same stuff, if you will. Um, but each of the persons of the Trinity is fully God. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. And God the Holy Spirit is fully God. But they all share the same essence of themselves being God. Um, oftentimes there's an illustration that... Preachers use to try to illustrate uh, the uh, Trinity, and one of the famous ones is the egg, right? You have, it's one egg, right? But it has three parts. It has the, the shell, the yolk, and um, the white part of the egg, right? I just blanked on what, what the other part was. Um, so that's a good illustration, you, you think, right? But that's not a, a proper, accurate illustration of what, what the Trinity is, because the, the shell is not the same essence, it's not the same stuff as the white part of an egg, right? So if you hear that illustration, it kind of helps, but doesn't, it's not theologically accurate, okay? Because God is the same essence, but three different persons. Uh, but when you, when you read persons, think a particular individual that is distinct from the others. So again, the Father is not the Son. Son is not the Holy Spirit. It's three distinct persons, but they all one God. Are y'all tracking with me? You're all confused yet? <laughs> It'll get more practical, don't worry. Uh, but there was never a time when one of the persons of the Godhead did not exist, right? They, they have always existed. They are all eternal. Um, they are all identical in attributes, right? God the Father is not more just than God the Son. God the Son is not more loving than God the Holy Spirit. They are all equal in their attributes. So they are equal in essence, but they are different in personhood, right? So it's one essence of God, and God is three persons in one. Make sense? All right, you all understand the Trinity. You can go home. Just kidding. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a couple 
uh, false teachings that I just want to touch on really quickly, just because sometimes when you think about the Trinity, it can be confusing. And one of those is called modalism. And essentially what that means um, is that God is one thing at a time. So he's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all together at the same time. But like in the Old Testament, he was God the Father. When Jesus came, he was God the Son. And now, in our era, he is God the Holy Spirit. Meaning God can only be one of those things at a time, right? That is incorrect. If you ever heard of the illustration of God is like water, God is like water, or he can be like ice, or he can be like vapor, um, that's essentially what that is teaching, whether they realize it or not, is modalism, because water can't be ice and water and vapor all at the same time, right? It can only be one substance at a time. But that's not what the Bible teaches, right? It's that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they all exist together forever. They have existed and they will exist. There's never been a time when the Son and the Spirit have not existed or when God the Father has not existed. They've always existed in concert, in unison, together. There's never been a time when they have been separated. And then there's one more I'll I'll touch on. It's called Arianism. Basically, he denies the full deity of Christ by saying that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. Basically, that God the Father created God the Son, right? And we've talked about the person of Christ in a previous lesson, so we won't spend too much time on that. Um, but that's primarily what uh, today Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Uh, they, they don't believe that God the Son has existed as long as God the Father has. They, they believe God the Father created the Son at some point. So I have this, for, for point number two, I have this interesting uh, question here uh, posed for you. Uh, it's that what was God doing before creation? And you might think, what does that have to do with the Trinity. Well, if, if you think about a God who is primarily singular, right? If you want to believe in that there's one God, but he's just a singular God. What would, that, what would that God be like and what would he do? If he wanted to create something, A, why would he want to create something? Because he's all inward focused, right? I'm one person. I'm inwardly focused in on myself. There is nothing besides me. Why should there be something besides me, right? And you might think, well, what was God doing in the beginning? Well, in the beginning, God created, right? But what was God doing before God created? Jesus actually answers this for us in John chapter 17, verse uh, 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before God was a creator, before God was sustaining the universe, before God was ruling over all of creation, what was he doing? He was a father loving his son. And you have to think about that and think about how important this concept is. If God was not in eternity past a loving father loving his son, but instead was some lonely deity, right? I have no one to love. I have no one to serve me, right? That's what all the uh, pagan myths are. You have these lonely gods that need servants, and so they make humans, right? And so now I have these human servants that can serve me. Or I'm this lonely god that needs someone to worship me, so I'll make these humans who can love me, right? You have these gods who become needy, who need us or need something outside of themselves in order to be fulfilled. But here we have a Trinitarian god who in eternity past was a loving father. 
And that trickles down into every single aspect of our faith and our view of God. And that's why I wanted to start here with what was he doing before us, before creation? He was a loving father, loving his son. Because that means that if God is a father, he must be relational. A father gives life. A father, to be a good father, is not self-centered and self-focused, but outward-focused on others. You see how important that is? How important it is to our view of God? God is not a lonely, selfish God that just wants to be served. God has always been a loving father seeking to give love to another. And that frames everything about who he is and our view of him. Because how, how does a God who is not Trinity love? If he's never loved anyone before, if we just show up on the scene, how would he know how to love us? Why would he love us? Why would he even make us in the first place? If I am singular within myself and inwardly focused and content just to be alone and think that it's just about me, why would I include another? Right? Just look at little kids that play with toys. They're inwardly focused. They don't want another to play with their toys. It's all about me. And I want to be focused in on me. And if you don't focus on me, I will be very upset and let you know. Right? God, though, in eternity past, has been a trinity in a loving, communal relationship. And that frames everything about him. So the triune God is, is not a monk, right? God did not want to go lock himself away in a cave somewhere and be left alone. And like, oh, these pesky people, now they're bothering me, right? God, in eternity past, was a loving father who then created us as an outward expression of his love and desire to give to another. Does that make sense? God is not an inward-focused, selfish, self-centered God. God is about the other. God is about loving his son. And how could God be the eternal father unless there was an eternal son to love? God did not become a father once he made mankind. God had already been a father for eternity past. God had already had plenty of experience before we came along, right? That's why he is such a loving father to us, because he's been a loving father forever. So he is love. So John 17, 24 says that the eternal son is loved by the father before creation. And over and over again, we see that the scripture affirms God as a father. All the way through the Old Testament, it's there. All the way in the New Testament, it's there. Um, and it's not that being a father is something that God does, right? God doesn't say, okay, I'm going to put on my, my dad hat now. I'm going to be a good dad. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to go home and just relax and take off my dad hat. No, God is, by his very nature, father. That's who he is. And that frames everything else that he does in Scripture. And so if God is not father, if he has no son, if he will have no children, then he must be some lonely, distant, unapproachable God, which is how many religions view their gods, right? There's someone way out there, they're distant, they're unapproachable, I can never know them, they can never know me, because they are not father. But by his very nature, that's not who God is. By his very nature, he is, in, he is seeking to love another because he has for eternity been loving his son, and the son has been loving the father as well. That's why in, in scripture, love is the supreme ethic. 
That's why in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And why Jesus continues that in the New Testament in Matthew 22 when he says, And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's why love in Scripture is the supreme law. Because that is who God is fundamentally, is that he himself is a loving father. That's why God is more concerned with heart transformation than behavior modification. Right? God is more interested in you being changed. Because if he was just a God that desired slaves, all he would desire is obedience. Whether or not you love him would be of no concern, right? But God, as a loving father, does, he, you can, he, he's told us that you can obey me, but still not love me. You can do the right things, but still not be right with me, because I desire not just outward acts of obedience, but I desire you to love me as I have loved you. That's why that is what drives everything about what Christianity teaches, is because that is who God is. He is love because he is father. And that answers so many why questions. You know, why is God love? Because he has always been a loving father. Why did God create in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? Because all we pretty much have done for God is cause him problems. Why did he create us? It's because he is a loving father seeking to express his love to us. God wanted another opportunity, another means to express his loving fatherly care. He didn't need us, right? He didn't need us to worship him. He was already perfectly content, perfectly happy within his trinity. He didn't need us for anything. But God chose to create, to create us because of who he is. And why does God even offer salvation to us, right? So he initially made us, but then we fell. If he was not a father, he would have just abandoned us or destroyed us, right? But fathers don't destroy their kids when they disobey, right? Otherwise, none of us would be here. But a loving father then tries to save his children, right? And so that's why God, instead of condemning Adam and Eve immediately to eternal hell, instead promises them, as soon as they fall in Genesis 3, a means of salvation. And the whole drama of the coming Messiah begins. Why? Because God is Trinity, because God is a loving Father. And so, thirdly there, we see that the Bible begins with the Trinity. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God there is Elohim, and Elohim is a plural form for God. Right? There are many words that the Bible uses to describe God. Uh, this one uh, is a plural form, right? meaning uh, this is a reference to the Trinity. Um, the, the, it says in verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, so there's the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. And then if you jump to verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Who is that us? Who is that our that God is talking to? Uh, it's, it's not the angels, right? We're not made in the angels' image. Angels don't have the power to create. God is talking within himself. God is talking to the Trinity, right? Here we have a clear reference to the Trinity here in the very beginning of Scripture. 
But where's Jesus? Well, John 1 makes it clear in John 1, verse 3, that all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here we see all, all three members of the Trinity were involved in the act of creation. Uh, God the Father speaks, the Word, the Son, creates, and the Holy Spirit hovers over the creation and gives it life. And also I thought this was, this was interesting in Genesis chapter 2 whenever God says it is not good that man should be alone, right? When you ask the why questions, why, why would God care that Adam is alone, right? What is the driving motivation behind God caring that Adam is lonely? Well, if you believe that God is not lonely and he makes someone in his image, right, it makes perfect sense to say that it's not good to have men alone. Right? As God is not alone, so a human made in his image should not be alone either. Right? Sometimes we forget to ask like, the why questions as we read through Scripture we just, because we maybe have heard it our whole lives or we just don't think to ask. But when you ask why, why would God do this? Why would God even make us? <laughs> why would God create this idea of marriage? Why, why did God do all this? It's because of who he is. It's because of the Trinity. That's the underlying driving force of who he is and everything that he does. We also see that, see that the, the uh, Trinity was vital to the ministry of Jesus. The Trinity was vital to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, we see the Trinity in the baptism of Christ. So at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So we already have Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here we have at the very offset of the ministry of Christ a clear representation of the Trinity again. We have the Son being baptized. The Holy Spirit coming down as a dove, signifying God's blessing. And then God the Father himself speaks from heaven, saying, this is my son. Yeah. And we have no other prophet, no other teacher had this type of validation for their ministry, right? Many people have claimed, I'm, I'm sent from God, right? Many people have claimed, I'm the Messiah. Many people have claimed to have special giftings or abilities, but no one has had the a stamp of approval of the Trinity on their ministry like Jesus did, right? This was part of the evidence that this was who he said he was, that the entire Trinity was involved in his inauguration, if you will. So we see that there in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, and then also we see it in the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, which I hope we all know. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Again, a clear obvious reference to the trinity which means we are to make disciples in context in a trinitarian theology right in a with a clear articulation that they are not just following some god right they're not following some generic god they are following god the father god the son and god the holy spirit god they're following this triune being that the bible proclaims right many people believe in god or a god but when you very talk, or when you talk very specifically about this Trinitarian God, do you believe in God the Father? 
you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? That is what makes you Christian, right? That is what makes you a true follower of Christ, because you can't say, well, I believe in God the Father, but not God the Son, or I believe in God the Son, but I don't really think the Holy Spirit's a thing, right? That's not what the Bible teaches, is you have to have all of him, or you have none of him. And so we see that it was vital to the ministry of Christ, and that, um, so it starts with the, with the Trinity in Genesis, uh, then it continues on, we see these clear evidences in the ministry of Jesus, and the Bible also ends with the Trinity in Revelation. Um, we don't have time to read all of the passages, but in, in chapter 4, John sees God the Father on the throne of heaven, right? John is taken up into this vision of, of the throne room of heaven, right? And the first thing he sees is God the Father on the throne, and he articulates it as being God the Father. And next to the throne, we see in chapter 5, the Holy Spirit and then the Lamb, which is, of course, Jesus. So as the text of Scripture draws to a close, we have, again, present, all three members of the Trinity are there. And then, just like in Genesis, all three members of the Trinity were there participating in creation, at the very end of Revelation, in chapters 21 and 22, every member of the Trinity speaks. In chapter 21, the Father speaks, and in chapter 22, the Lamb speaks, and then the Holy Spirit speaks, and the book draws to a close. So just as the Bible begins with a Trinitarian God working together in concert to create, the Bible ends in Revelation with a Trinitarian God saying this is how it's all going to come to an end, right? God places himself clearly at both the beginning and end of the story, right? And at every point of the way, it is a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that changes our, our view of heaven, right? If our God is Trinity, then our version, our idea of heaven is different than someone else's version of heaven would be. Um, if, if you think about it, if you look at Islam, right, they, they believe in one God. They believe in Allah. He's not a Trinity, though. He's just a singular entity. Um, they offer some type of paradise, but it's not with the presence of Allah, right? Because why would he want to be with you, <laughs> right? You're this dirty, sinful person. So they will give you paradise, but they won't give you themselves. And with Allah, you have 99 names that the, that the Muslims have to describe him, but they do not have the name Father to describe him, right? That is something that is so unique to us, is that there are gods that offer a type of salvation. There are gods that offer a type of heaven, if you will, but there is no other God that will enter into a relationship as Father and offer you an eternity with him. If you want to be Hindu, you can believe in all these different, or a Buddhist, all these different types of nirvana, right? You just kind of fade into the ether, but you're not with anyone, right? You are, you're disconnected, you're not connected. If you want to be a Muslim, you can believe in Allah and he will grant you paradise, but you will never be with him you will just be in a separate place. But our God, as a loving Father, has made for us a heaven that we can be with Him, that we can be known by Him. It's not just about going to this place that makes us feel good, right? It's about going to a place to be with the one who made us, right? And that's why God is different than the gods of other 
religion. Um, so what is your Christian life like? What shape is your faith in uh, this evening? You might think, well, this is all kind of cool, kind of makes sense, but seriously, what impact does this have on me? Well, your, your whole life is going to be shaped by your view of God. That changes everything, right? If, if I believe that God is a cold, uh, distant taskmaster, then I will respond accordingly. If, if I believe that God does not want a relationship with me, but he just wants, uh, he wants, he wants me to be religious, then I can do that, or I can be that type of person. But if I understand that God is a loving father, and that's the driving force behind everything he does and every aspect of who he is, then that creates within me a desire to love that father and to be loved by him, which is completely different than simply doing acts of obedience or putting a check mark by a religious deed. So the Trinity affects how you relate to God. Does God just care about my behavior? Or is the Christian life supposed to be about enjoying God himself? Right? That's a huge huge issue. Do I just care about behaving rightly, or do I care about knowing God? Do I want to know him? Or how you even view the, the human problem? Is, is the problem just that we have failed to keep a moral code, or is it something worse that we have turned our back on God himself? See the difference there? It's not just that we're not keeping this, this law. It's that God is here trying to enter into relationship with us, and we have rejected it and turned away from him. That's the human problem. And behavior will then follow, right? If I accept Christ, if I accept that relationship, then my behavior will change. If I reject Christ, then my behavior will reflect that as well, right? That's the human problem fundamentally is not that we haven't kept this checklist. It's that we have rejected the love of God the Father. It also affects how you, how you read the Bible, right? Why do you read the Bible? People read it for many different reasons, right? Just for just for duty, I'm supposed to read the Bible, so here I go. Or I want to earn God's favor, uh, or it's a self-help thing. How, how can I be better at X, Y, Z? Let me read the Bible and find out. How can I have helpful tips for living a moral life, right? The Bible can't offer all those things, but oftentimes when we go to the Bible with that approach, we get discouraged because, all right, I'm going to learn how to be a better husband. And I open up, and my reading for today is in the genealogies. It's like, okay. Here we go, right? This does nothing for me because I'm approaching it from the wrong perspective, right? When we understand, though, that the Son is the subject of all of Scripture, that God the Son is the subject of all the writings of Scripture, that the Son reveals the Father to us through Scripture as we read, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, as he enlightens our hearts, then we read not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now, but what can I learn about Christ? What can I learn about God? Right? Instead, of, instead of coming to Scripture with the idea of, okay, how can this benefit me in my life? It's how can I know God better through this reading? Right? What is God trying to teach me about himself through this? Maybe you won't find a five-step list on how to be better with your finances, but you can find out more about who God is, what he is like, what he expects, and how you can love him better. It affects how, how we pray, right? Sometimes we get confused with 
how you pray. Have you ever been confused, God? I mean, Jesus, I mean, I don't really know, but you know, God. Okay, here we go. When we, when we pray, we are praying to God the Father, and we come to him in the name of Jesus, and we pray through the Holy Spirit. That makes sense? We come to God the Father through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. That makes sense? So it, it even changes how, how we pray. You have, you have an accurate way to pray, right? Um, again, God's not going to strike you dead if you pray to Jesus or you pray to the Holy Spirit, okay? That's not what I'm saying, but it's, it's, it's a clear reference uh, for how we should structure our, our prayer life. Um, the whole doctrine of the Trinity even affects our assurance of salvation, right? Are we simply allowed into heaven as um, temporary citizens whose visas can be revoked? Or are we being ushered in as adopted children by a loving father, right? It's a much different scenario. Um, it's also the uh, very focus of our life, right? If, if God is this outward-focused God who is concerned with others, that changes how I live. If I understand God is that way, I should be that way. I, I don't become this inward-focused, selfish person. I become an outward, other-focused, other-centric person. That's what characterizes the Christian life because that's what characterizes God. That's why a selfish Christian is a Christian that is immature, right? Because they don't understand the God that they serve. God is not an inward-focused, selfish God. He is an other-focused, selfless God. And our understanding of the Trinity even is the foundation for all of our human uh, relationships. Um, you know, there, there's a definite shape to the relationship between God the Father and, and God the Son, right? Obviously, God the Son loves God the Father, but Scripture talks much more about God the Father's love for the Son, right? It's a very structured thing. God the, God the Father, His love is, is primary. He is the loving head. Um, and that then begins this waterfall of love, if you will, that cascades into all of our lives. So if if God the Father is, is the head of Christ, the Bible then teaches us that God the Son is, is head of the church, right? And so that affects our, our view of the church. And then it also seeps into our human relationships, right? Because the Bible teaches us that as Christ is the head of the church, the, the husband is the head of the wife, right? But is that this abusive thing? But when you understand that who God the Father is, it's a loving thing, Right? God the Father loves the Son selflessly with everything that he has. God the Son gives himself freely to the church so the church can't help but love him back, right? We love him because he loved us first. And that shapes how husbands love their wives. And that shapes how wives love their husbands, right? The Trinity affects every aspect even of our human relationships. And it also affects our relationships with the world, right? This this idea of evangelism, where did that come from? Why do we go out and share the love of Christ with others? Because fundamentally, that's who God is, that he goes out seeking to share and spread his love with others as well, right? If, if God was selfish and inward-focused, he wouldn't care whether or not you and I were saved, and he wouldn't care if we cared if anyone else was saved, right? If it's all about me, I'm good, so why else do I need to care, Right? But because God is other-focused, God is outward-focused, God wants to share his love with as many as possible, we are called to then share his love with others through evangelism. And fundamentally, I have at the very end of that sheet there, is we become like what we worship. 
right? We become like what we worship. If you have this twisted view of God that he is this angry, selfish, self-centered, egotistical God up there, then you will become like that God, right? Instead of a father, you view him more like a Fuhrer. You will become like that. But if you understand that God is this loving father who seeks the, the well-being and the benefit and the redemption and salvation of others, he has put others before himself even, then that is what you will become like. That is what I will become like. That's why there can be Christians who are sour people, who are fruitless people. It's because they still don't view God as that loving father who is focused on, on others, who forgives who redeems, who saves. Christians forget that sometimes, and we become inward-focused, we become selfish, we allow small things to offend us, and it becomes all about me. But that's not who the Trinitarian God is, and it's not what the Trinitarian God drives us to be as believers. And so I hope tonight, blasted through those two pages, thank you for hanging with me, that you have at least an inkling of why The Trinity is so important, but also just of who God is, because who God is changes everything about your life, right? If if we thought that God was some distant, cold, self-centered God, our faith would be very different. But because he has, in eternity past, been a loving Father, and he has continued on that love and given that love to us, that changes everything about how I view my walk with him, how I view my relationship with you and how we view our relationship with the world. And so if we don't get our understanding, our view of God right, if it's not a Trinitarian view, then we cannot have the proper view of God, and then we cannot have a proper relationship with God, and we can't be the type of people God wants us to be. And so if you are interested in learning more about this, I've titled my lesson, it's the same title as the book, Delighting in the Trinity. It's not an academic book. It's not a super heady book. It's actually kind of humorous the way he's written it. Um, So if you're interested in reading more, I would highly encourage you. I by no means have read every book on the Trinity out there, but this is my favorite one, and it's super simple to read. It's not super long. So if you're interested in learning more about this and how it affects your life, I would encourage you to read it. Um, But as we understand more about God and the Trinity, it really will become a delight. It really will become a source of joy instead of being this enigma that seems totally irrelevant to you today. And so I would encourage you to maybe read some of the passages uh, that we read through tonight. Uh, Read that book if you have the time. But we are Christians. Our faith is what it is. We believe what we believe only because God is Trinity. Let's pray.